Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my YouTube and Podbean podcast, uh, Got Him at Space 22 episodes. Today, I'm very excited to have a repeat guest. He's been on here before, Dr. Eduardo Echeverria from Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. He's professor of philosophy and theology there. He is the author of numerous books, articles, way too many to mention on here. It would take half an hour to list them. So the point being uh, an accomplished scholar and someone that actually, even though I've never met in person, I consider to be a real comrade in arms, a friend and a kindred soul. So I'm very, very uh, pleased and grateful that he wanted to come on here today. The topic today is an important topic. I uh, recently had an article in National Catholic Register in which I was responding to what I consider to be the deeply flawed uh, forms of biblical exegesis that Father James Martin S.J. has placed upon his webpage outreach to homosexuals called Outreach. And uh, I, and Dr. Echeverria has, has just recently, am I pronouncing your last name right, Echeverria? Echeverria uh, is it. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's what, I, yeah. yeah. So he's recently, uh, He's contributing now uh, 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 an article, which will be a chapter in an edited book. God knows when it will come out. Uh, but he sent it to me and I loved it. So I wanted to get back to him because it's related to what I wrote about Father Martin. And the title of his essay or his soon to be chapter is called The Triumph of the Therapeutic Mentality, a response to James Barton S.J. And as soon as I read this, I thought, oh, I got to get him, get him on the show, because this is actually uh, this is not sort of inside baseball ecclesiastical politics that we're doing here. This is an important topic, a very, very important topic. And what you and I both consider to be, I think, uh, the misuses of this issue by Father Martins. But anyway, so I'm going to turn it right over to you. I know you wanted to make some comments. You told me off, off screen on my essay in the register uh, to begin with. So go ahead. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on, Larry. It's always a pleasure, and I always enjoy reading your stuff. Uh, insightful, penetrating, and always engaging. Um, I did want to say just a few words uh, about uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the contributors to that uh, uh, to that. What is it? Outreach. Where, where yeah. Uh, outreach yeah where he posted. yeah outreach they had a whole bunch of bible scholars you yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. jewish protestant catholic talking right, about right, right. you know go ahead and so you talked about that and you focused on the question of biblical biblical interpretation exegesis all of that and um i would just like to say a, a few words about that um for instance i think it's important uh, i think it's important to distinguish between the central commandment of love, so to love God above, in an unrestricted manner, uh, above all things, heart, soul, mind, and so on, we need to distinguish the central commandment of love from uh, the, the uh, foundational commandments, by which I mean here the, the Ten Commandments, and, the, and distinguish those commandments from concrete commands, yeah. which I take to be the application uh, contingent norms, empirical norms. So, for instance, um, you know, in Exodus 21, verse 17, it says anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Yeah, exactly. We don't, we, we don't do that any longer. No. But that's, an ap that's a concrete command. It's an application of a primary commandment that is, I think, absolute and universal from Exodus 20, 
uh, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Um, so another example here, the Christian appeals to God's prohibition against same-sex relations in Leviticus 18.22, you shall not have intercourse with a man as you would with a woman, it is an abomination. But we consider the idea that uh, that uh, death is the punishment for same-sex relations. We don't accept that in, in Leviticus in Leviticus 2013. I take that to be an application of uh, yes. of, uh, of fundamental commandments. The other thing, of course, is that to take um, capital punishment um, to be the the uh, to be the punishment for engaging in in, in in homosexuality and so on that was part of the penal code of Israel the state of Israel but well, we no longer we don't live under the state of Israel so the penal code right. is not uh, applicable to us but that doesn't mean that the the primary commandment or the fundamental commandments uh, is not is not valid um for instance there's also another example uh, the sixth commandment uh, for rejecting adultery is wrong in Exodus 20, verse 14. But we don't accept that the punishment for committing adultery is death, as right. it says in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 20, verse 12. So my point is that we can make distinctions. Yes, the central commandment of love is at the core of all the commandments, to love God, above all things with your whole whole uh, heart soul mind strength and to love your neighbor as yourself we can distinguish that from primary commandments or fundamental commandments such as the the second table of the decalogue and then the application of those commandments in specific contexts right wherein we say that the application we don't ex the application is no longer relevant to us huh? but it's yeah. not that it's not that uh cuz the reason I make I make these distinctions is because in 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 the article you wrote you you know you had these people saying well there's so many things that we don't accept anyway now so why can't we just put yeah why why, why do we why do we accept uh, you know the prohibitions against uh, homosexual relations huh the other thing I'd like to just quickly re refer to is that whenever I read people like this I always think to myself. That they really don't think, and here I'm quoting John Paul II from uh, Veritatis Splendor, paragraph 37, where he affirms that there does exist in divine revelation a specific and determined moral content, universally valid and permanent, yes. he says. So they they call into question, I think, the moral authority of the Bible. and, and uh, They do. Does, and um... They deny that there are absolute and universally valid biblical precepts against incest, the bestiality that we find in Exodus 22.19, adultery, child sacrifice, prostitution, uh, rape, etc., etc., bribery, uh, and all of that. So, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, they, they're, they're, they're clearly... They're clearly not only do they render the the moral authority of the Bible in terms of specific moral precepts, as uh, as John Paul II, a specific and determined moral content. Yes, that's universally valid and permanent. But also, 
and I say this in, in one of my articles on Father Martin, that there's a, an inherent connection between salvation and morality and the, and the moral choices that you make. And, and they want to uh, sever that connection in, in various ways by oh, saying they, that... Uh, yeah, they do. You know, as, as you well know, you know, when you write for something like uh, the Register or as I do Catholic World Report, you get sort of severe word limits imposed upon you. Sure, sure, and, sure. You know, if I'd had more time, if, if it had been one of my more famously long blog essays that go on for six, seven thousand words, then, yeah, I would have uh, I would have gone through in much more specificity what it is that you just said. So I'm glad I'm so glad that you, an expert in this, uh, have now unpacked it, because all I was able to allude to in the article was I said, look, essentially, the issue of biblical interpretation is complex, so I can't go into it. Sure, but sure, of course. The chief problem that I identified then is they 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 treat the Old Testament as just this undifferentiated law that there aren't right. levels to the law. Right, the, right. As you know, in other words, there's the natural moral law, then there's cultic purity laws, judicial right, laws, right, penal right. laws, and they just treat it all as the same. So because right, exactly. we don't, as you just pointed, because they don't accept the penal law anymore, therefore we don't have to accept the moral code, which is precisely the legitimate exegetical move that they're making. Right, right, and it's right. very, very disingenuous for a lot of reasons. And as I also pointed out in the article, they then go on to treat the uh, other commandments, you know, towards inclusion and love and so as completely, well, that we do have to accept. Well, they never quite explain why, since you've just lumped everything together into the, everything together into the untrustworthy category. And the only thing that right. we really have as a metric is modern reason. Then right. there's a lot of modern people that would look at even the God is love stuff as suspicious. And why don't we just chuck that, too? So anyway, well, I think I think part of it is also is they don't really accept, uh, you know, this, those three hermeneutical uh, principles from uh, De Verbum. Um, in paragraph uh, uh, 11, where it says that uh, you have to attend to the unity and the content of the whole of Scripture. Yes. You have to interpret the Scripture um, in, in, in relationship to tradition. So the, the history of the transmission of a particular text, you can ask the question, for instance, an example I often give. I mean, uh, you know, there's Ephesians 5, 18 and following having to do with male headship and and uh, mutual submission and all that. Well, you can ask the question, how has that text been received in the history of the trans uh, of its transmission? Yeah. And in doing that, you may in fact show not that the not uh, my own view, not not that we reject male headship or mutual submission and all that. But that the way the text was received in its history can be corrected. I mean, I think that's what uh, uh, because you can have people who think that um, you know that uh, Ephesians five eighteen and following is somehow uh, uh, stating that uh, a woman has to be uh, not just not just it's not just about male headship, but that somehow an, a kind of an authoritarian view of yeah. the relationship between. So you can correct the, and then you can correct the way that that text was received, transmitted, and at the same time recover. You know the 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 meaning of that text. I think that's what yeah. John Paul II did yes. in his uh, you know Mularis Dignitatum, uh, and in other places. You know, and um, and 
and then thirdly, the third principle, of course, is that you have to interpret the, the text and what the text asserts and all that in the context of the, the coherence of faith, the analogy of faith, it says. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, so in retrieving the texts on homosexuality, we, of course, are going to, in a sense, correct the, the aspect of the penal code that says, okay, that, that deserves death. We're not going to retrieve it or receive it in that way. No, no. But we also want to retrieve it and receive it in the context of the totality of the Bible's sexual anthropology of male, female, Excellent. of marriage, of the covenant, and so on. Exactly. And thus grounds it in a higher moral, theological, Christological principle. And that's precisely what these outreach guys don't do. They don't do that because they don't accept... Essentially, they don't read that first principle, attend to the unity and content of the whole of Scripture. Yeah. They don't attend, they don't, they don't read the scripture like that, a kind of a canonical, a canonical approach to the text. They don't read it that way. And of course, they 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 don't accept propositional revelation that there are assertions in the Bible, the, the determinant moral right. content that that John Paul II is talking about there in Veritatis Splendor. And so at the end of the day, of course, you think that. You know, the, their approach really questions the moral authority of the Bible. Uh, yeah, in, in more ways than one, I would also say it, it, I, it questions in some sense, I think, the legitimacy of, in many ways, of the Old Testament as such. Absolutely. There's a, there's a subtle antinomianism, which is a kind of Marcionism that, yes, that yes. flows through all of this stuff. That, that well, because I, they probably don't accept that the, the idea... Uh, uh, that there are universally valid moral precepts, yeah. you know, whether yeah. negative precepts that are exceptionless moral norms, or even uh, precepts that have a presumptive authority, you know, um, even though there might be uh, reasons that you could offer for, um, if not exemption, saying that it's it, it's not applicable here. But no, so this reflects their whole view, not just of scripture, but their whole sort of moral philosophical view. Um, the other thing, it seems to me, this whole thing about inclusion, I often quote, you know, what there were the famous Niebuhr, H. Richard and Reinhold in the 19th in the 20th century. Yeah. And H. Richard Niebuhr uh, in his book, 1931 book called The Kingdom of God in America, he describes um liberalism theological liberalism he himself wasn't a liberal he would he would have regarded himself as you know what what we used to call neo-orthodox and all that sure and, absolutely you know, so but he described liberalism this way he said and this has everything to do with you know with ato the atoning work of christ and all that he said this is liberalism he said a god without wrath brought men without without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's right. So there, that's a famous no quote. Yeah, that's a famous quote. There's no wrath. There's no sin. There's no judgment. And there's no cross, you see. Yeah. And so, and so a lot of these, uh, the, the, the atonement uh, the theory that a lot of these people work with is, you know, the Abelardian, uh, it's all about love as opposed to, yes, yeah. of course, it's about love. We, we know, you know, and, and, and this is love that Christ died. Christ well, died for yeah, and, 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 and in a lot of ways, it's merely an exemplarist view of the atonement. Exactly. Accentuating that uh, certainly 
God doesn't get any satisfaction out of his son getting tortured and murdered in a bloody butchering sort of way. He's not a sadist in the sky. Therefore, uh, all the, the cross is not a sacrifice. There is no atonement. There's no substitution. That's all cruel. All it is right. is an example of Christ being exactly. willing, willing to die ex- for it. Yeah, he's willing to die for a righteous cause and in solidarity right. so with all of the underdogs in history. Right. This is a right. fundamental right. So, liberationist Christological category, Christ solidarity right. so, with all the losers, which is great. That's part of it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but but still, it doesn't exhaust the meaning of the cross. And eventually it evacuates because ultimately just about anything Christ does, therefore, can become an exemplarist model of, of what we should do. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's right. So so it's not only their moral theology, as it were, but it's also their atonement theology, because it's all about, uh, you know, inclusion. Um, the, the other thing that that I think is important, and that I, I, I talk about um, in, uh, in various, in various places, and that is, uh, you know, what, what I, the, the term therapeutic mentality, yeah, let's, let's get to your article here now, because yeah, yeah. that's what you're talking about. Right. So, you know, so I, I talk about the triumph of the therapeutic mentality, and it and it just it, it really just means that uh um self-authenticating experiences, the justification of self-authenticating experiences, huh? Yeah. And uh, and and so people so Father Martin doesn't doesn't give an account of that. He doesn't go on to defend the notion of, of self-authenticating experiences, but he just simply assumes that somehow uh, ex- a person's life experience is self-validating. Yes. Um, experiences granted, I say, an authority that sometimes, even for Christian, trumps the Bible's own moral authority. Indeed, an individual's experience is taken to be a final arbiter of falsehood, truth and falsehood in the church. Um, now, I think I think that that's uh, obviously mistaken. I, I, I actually I quote Aidan Nichols, who said, "It's not experience we should trust, but the transmutation of experience by Scripture and tradition." But I think I take it that Father Father Martin is an example of this in his book, uh, you know, building a bridge both the first and and the and the revised and expanded version that came out in 2018 he doesn't argue for the authority of experience as self-justifying it's just a presupposition of his work i say uh and then i say there are two other presuppositions that play an important role in in father martin's work his understanding of dialogue but also of respect um in his in his view, um, a homosexual qua homosexual is wonderfully made. I mean, that's why he has at the end of the book, you know, all these uh, uh, passages from the Psalms. You know, he wants he wants the same sex attracted person to know that he's been wonderfully made, and so he thinks that uh, from the order of creation, from the order of creation, yeah. uh, uh, a homosexual is in that respect uh, wonderfully made. Uh, in this, I say, in this connection, it follows that that Martin holds it to be legitimate to ground human identity in so-called homosexual orientation, which encompasses an individual's personal and social identity. 
How does he justify that? How does he in, even insist on it? And I think, again, the only criteria that he suggests legitimizes it is individual experience. Individual experience becomes a Supreme Court for adjudicating the gospel, the teachings of the church. It all has to be interpreted in the light of, of those experiences. Um, the other thing is uh, the whole matter of... Um, uh, where is it? The whole matter of, um, you know, his his suggesting that there are good elements in these relationships, you know, whether it's uh, love, commitment, fidelity, mutuality, yeah, that you yeah. can find traces of that. And then I always say to that, uh, that you can't treat these quote unquote goods in a neutral way. They're not neutral goods, huh? You can't abstract those goods from particular sexual That's behavior, true. which right. the church unequivocally rejects, and from the larger culture of homosexuality, to say nothing of the worldview, the sexual revolution, underpinning the interpretation of these goods. Can I interrupt for one second? And please, I, 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 I want to underscore the truth of this, because as Aquinas points out, when we, when we sin, we choose evil, we do so under the aspect of some good. Uh, you know, we never choose evil for the sake of some evil. The, the problem with sin is that we're sacrificing a, a greater evil to a lesser evil. I mean, a greater right. good to a lesser good. The hierarchy is screwed up. Right, right. All right. So when I commit a sexual sin, you know, let's say I commit adultery, it, I'm sacrificing the greater good of marriage and fidelity to my spouse for the lesser good of sexual pleasure with somebody. But the sexual pleasure in and of itself is not inherently evil. So my point is simply that to, to underscore what you're saying is that you could take any sin and given the fundamental Thomistic anthropology of the church and say, well, we can find aspects of the good in it. Right. Uh, you know, even in adultery, there's some aspect of the good there. Well, I'm you, having an, I, there might having be some time. I mean, yeah, and there might be some real mutuality well, and respect. You may and, even claim that you love this woman or the woman loves you. Or that, that's, that's true. Exactly. So that's that's the problem with that argument, though. Oh, yeah, we can. There's mutuality and concern and nurturing and these. Well, yeah. So what? That misses the point. As, you can't treat them as neutral goods. Exactly. Exactly. You, that's you can't my point. treat them as morally neutral because yeah. they have to be embedded back in the context of the the actions uh um, yeah because take example my my example of the committing adultery there might be mutuality there but i can't abstract that mutuality from the fact that it's mutuality with someone i should not be having mutuality with exactly exactly <laughs> you know? the other thing is uh, in your article you also talk about um the idea that uh, you know father martin has problems with the notion of objectively disordered and yes like you, I say. Um, intrinsically that, disordered, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, objectively disordered, intrinsically disordered. Like you, I say that the that he doesn't say that his problem is solely with the language used that otherwise correctly describes the homosexual condition. Uh, right. If that were the problem, he would just suggest a change. Remember, you said he. he uh, I remember that he suggested differently ordered or some yeah. such thing. You know. Yeah. Um, he, then he would just suggest a change in the language used to describe an expression of human brokenness because of man's fallen state. But he obviously doesn't see it as an expression of man's fallen state. Father Martin does not consider the individual in the homosexual condition to be in a fallen state. Uh, thus, he does not consider whether the term is true to reality. 
and hence morally right about homosexual practice, or even whether it is, however, inadequately getting at the reality of the homosexual condition. And he's not the only one here. You know, you can find oh, many, no. many, sadly, many people in the church, even in cardinals and bishops and so on, who object to the term, you know, inher intrinsically disordered. Cardinal McElroy objects to it. Cardinal Supich oh, objects right, to right. it. Right, right, all of these. And... Yeah. Um, so I say Father Martin does not just object to the formulation of the homosexual condition as objectively disordered. If that were solely it, he would acknowledge the distinction between the normative order of creation and the order of the fall, followed by the order of redemption. One yeah. would then take as normative the truth that God made man our created nature as male and female for each other, Genesis 1.27, and that this nature is savagely wounded by sin, broken, but thanks be to God, it is redeemed, in Christ through his atoning work. Uh, so the other thing is um, that's, you know, that's important is what, because he's always citing those, those three words from, you know, the paragraph on homosexuality. And one of the words is respect. But, but what does Father Martin mean by respect? Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to recognize the existence of this community but I say he seems to be suggesting something more than merely tolerating. Uh, oh, that's very clear. Yeah, well, that's right. So he, he always he he denies that, but it's not. Um, As I said, him, yeah, go ahead. You know, I was going to say he seems to want people to respect the same sex desires of people with same sex attraction and the concomitant beliefs they hold that their desires are innate and good. Um, but it's wrong to ask people to express respect for what they think is immoral, false, and harmful, I say. And then I quote this, uh, the, 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 the English-British uh, philosopher, whom I don't have much in common with, but I agree with this point that he makes. We can respect, he says, in the minimal sense of tolerating those who hold false beliefs, but once we are convinced that a belief is false, or even just that it is irrational, we cannot respect in any thicker sense those who would hold it, not on account of their holding it. We may respect them for all other sorts of qualities, but not that one. We would prefer them to change their minds. Yes. Uh, hence the old adage, love the sinner, but hate the sin. So, that, he, yeah, go ahead. I think that's uh, a principle that they wish to attack. Father Martin, uh, Cardinal McElroy, um, Cardinal McElroy has even mentioned it, that we cannot make distinctions in what he calls the LGBT community between those who are sexually continent and those who are sexually active, because because that drives a wedge right down the middle of the LGBTQ community. Well, and the, my response to that would be, well, yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, yes, it does, Cardinal. Is and that's precisely the point. But this is the point Father Martin has made elsewhere as well, that this hate the sin but love the sinner thing is really difficult to pull off. And usually it involves hating the sinner as well. So there's a subtle implication that we're not really supposed to hate the sin at all. Uh, in order to love the sinner, we need to just, in a sense, at the very least, overlook the sin, treat it as trivial. Right. Well, then I also refer us back to, um, you know, Gaudium et Spes, uh, paragraph 28, um, where it affirms the distinction between how you relate to people and evaluating uh, the beliefs and judgments that people make. Huh? 
the one has to do with honoring the dignity of a person, uh, qua person, relating to that person in the context, and I quote Father Mark, encounter, accompaniment, and friendship. Yeah. But the latter relation, you know, evaluating their beliefs and practices on the other, um, calls calls us to assessment. I mean, St. Paul tells us in 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 First Thessalonians, you know, to em, embrace the good, test all things, embrace the good, reject what is yes. evil. Um, First yes. Thessalonians five twenty one to the distinction between relating relating to people and evaluating their beliefs and practices is affirmed by Vatican II. It says in paragraph 28, but it is necessary to distinguish error, which always merits repudiation, and the person in error, who never loses the dignity of being a person, right. even when he, he even when he is when he's when he is floored by false or inadequate religious or moral notions. Huh? This distinction is lost to Father Martin. It's lost to Card, uh, Cardinal Cardinal. Who? How could it be a Cardinal? M Cardinal McElroy. McElroy I, and, I know. And that other Cardinal, the European, who the Pope has made the head of Polerich. 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 Yeah. 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 Uh, he wants the church to make an unabashedly positive statement about people with same-sex attraction without including a critique, without including a critique. Yeah. Like uh, Father Martin, Father Martin says that, for example, when it comes to transgenderism, and I mentioned this in my article, the yes, church, the church needs to listen to psychologists, sociologists, scientists, and then last but not least, transgenders themselves, alluding to your thing about experience. Yes, but yes. As I point out in my article, what is missing there? Who should the church not listen to? Christ, the scriptures, her tradition, Vatican II, right. Veritati no, 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 no. Splendor, anything that the whole darn tradition has upheld over the millennia on the issue of homosexuality. And this brings up the point then that in all of this, one of the things that you never, ever, ever hear from Father Martin is when is it then? At what point? If all we're talking about here is is going against judgmentalism, if all we're talking about here is going against harsh treatment of homosexuals. And what we're talking about is toleration in order to bring them into the fold. Fine. Compassion, empathy, mercy. That's our way. But at what point do we then present the homosexual with the teaching of the church? This is where Father Martin never, ever talks. He never about does. It. And that's and because I don't to... think he believes in it. Oh, no, I, I agree with you. It's one thing to say I'm not going to, you know, uh, reject the teaching of the church. It's another thing to affirm it, and he doesn't really affirm it. Never affirms it, so he rejects it by omission right. and by pastoral strategy. He always says, well, all a homosexual ever hears when they come in the church is what they're doing is wrong, wrong, wrong. That's the first word they hear. Okay, fine. I'm not certain even that's empirically true, but no. let's assume that it is for the sake of argument. So we need to be a little less harsh with our you know, gay brothers and sisters. But what point then in this accompaniment do we stop and we say, for your sake, for the sake of your spiritual soul, for the sake of all that is holy, we, you know, we bring you the church's message of joy and love in the sexual domain, which forecloses the possibility of you having a sexual relationship with someone right. of your own sex right. and so on. At what point do you present this message? Father Martin is, is mute. He's completely silent. Let, let's turn for a moment to, um, you know, in the in the, uh, the 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 Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith in the early seventies, it came out with a document 
where it first drew the distinction between uh, uh, inclination and actions. And um, some 10 years later, so the actions, of course, were wrong, uh, but it, but the inclination to towards same-sex attraction, um, as it, as time went on, ten years later, uh, Ratzinger came out. There was another document from the CDF, and this is when Ratzinger was uh, the prefect, and he said, you know, this distinction uh, is such that there were people who regarded the inclination to be morally neutral um benign yeah and maybe even good oh yes so so not only so even though in the in the in the earlier documents on on uh, sexual ethics it has in the title in the english um there was the, the acts themselves homosexual acts were intrinsically disordered rotzinger then 10 years later said well it's not only action but it's also the inclination that is in, in, inherently disordered. Yeah. And, and so, so, so. Which is why the action is disordered. Well, that's right, because the, that's right. If you have, if the, if the inclination is inherently uh, sexually disordered, it's sexually disordered to certain actions that are, that are incompatible uh, with uh, the will of God, incompatible with well, order. just as you know, the reason why, yeah, the reason why masturbation is intrinsically disordered is because my desire to self-pleasure physically is intrinsically disordered. The desire right, right. is intrinsically disordered. It's the desire. So it's just like uh, I say this, you know, Jesus interiorizes the, the demands of the law so that you can have an adultery of desire and not merely and, and you know, not merely the act that you not, not merely the act right. of committing the, the adultery. Right. So it seemed to me that um, the church's magisterial teaching, uh, I talk about this in another article, about homosexuality is expressed in two ways, both as a condition, expressive of an inclination, of an attraction or desire, and as an activity. And the church rightly understands that Holy Scripture's condemnation of homosexuality pertains not only to outward acts, but also to the inward condition, to homosexual actions, as well as to the desires or inclinations constitutive of the homosexual condition itself. And then I refer to, you know, that the document, uh, the, the 2000, uh, what is it, the 1987 documents, which of course people hated. There was, there was a whole volume devoted to that uh, that was published by Paulist Press, and the only positive reception of, of that document was by Father Benedict Ashley. Yeah, um, he wrote the famous book on, you know, the uh, theology of the body, actually. Right. So, he, what, I'm, what I want to try to, to, to give an account of is the idea where, where people suggest, well, since that homosexuality doesn't involve a choice. It doesn't involve a choice. Um, but the fact is the uh, uh, same-sex attraction, the, the CDF says, uh, may come from a false education, from a lack of normal sexual development, from habit, from bad example, or from other similar uh, causes. In addition, there may be other causative factors for homosexuality from a person's developmental environment, 
They include indirect congenital influences, postnatal biological influences, macro and micro cultural influences from one's familial environment and personal psychological predisposition. Thus, in this life, we can understand that the condition of homosexuality is not one that is merely chosen. It is experienced as a given, not as something freely chosen. So the latter is essential for the choice to be considered a sin. And yet at the same time, and yet at the same time, um, this this has to do with uh, Ratzinger saying that people gave an overly benign interpretation <coughs> that some theologians gave to the homosexual condition itself, going some going so far as to call it neutral or even good. Contrary to this conclusion, you know, Monsignor Livio Melina, he correctly argues that the homosexual condition is experienced as natural by the individual, he says, be, quote, because of the disordered disposition of his being. He, he adds, St. Thomas points this out in relation to unnatural pleasures. Thomas says, what is contrary to the nature of the species becomes natural to this individual per accident, he says. Yeah, this is key because... Melino. Oh, go, oh, go ahead. Molino concludes, in the case of homosexuality, as in other cases, the complaint, quote, that's the way I am, expresses many things. The frustrating realization yes. that one cannot change, a way of blaming nature and perhaps God for one's condition, even the unwillingness to reconsider one's attitude toward reality, he says. That is so true. It goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, Eduardo, about experience uh, and that we just accept experience as its own authority, unfiltered through any Christological or theological lens to help us test everything, as St. Paul says. Or even cultural, even all of those factors that yeah. may have contributed to the point where you say, uh, this is the way I am. And you yeah, and, and, the, and the fact is, all of us have habitual sins. Our deepest and most abiding sins are the habitual ones that are those those of us who go to confession have the experience right of confessing essentially the same right. deeply ingrained sins over and over right, and over again. Right, and right. over time, a certain despair and resentment can build up about any sin that is really deep in us that, hey, look, at some point, I'm going to say I'm going to stop confessing this because dad gummit, this is who I am. This is natural to me. This is how God wonderfully made me. I was born with this predisposition to being completely impatient and annoyed towards other people. That's my vice. That's my deep sin. Constant, constant impatience and annoyance at other people because they're they're thwarting what it is I want to do at that moment or whatever. At some point, I have to sit back and say, though, as natural as that feels to me, it is part of something deeply disordered within me. Well, and that's why you can't, uh, and and often, you know, theologians, these these cardinals and others, they they take it that there's a parity uh, from the order of creation between homosexuality and heterosexuality, and so they make it seem as if the problem is really just one of chastity, that they both have to live up to chastity, right. see, when when that's not the case. The problem is the homosexual condition itself, it seems to me. Um, and, and then, of course, um, this is why the act orientation distinction uh, was, I know what it was getting at, but it was interpreted in such a way that it rendered the the, the condition itself uh, uh, 
in a sense, normal from the order of creation. And so you have this parity. Um, and so then I think the question one has to ask, what then is the origin of that inclination, if not the choices that men make? And theologically, the ultimate origin of this condition, and hence those homosexual tendencies that incline an individual to what is always intrinsically immoral, is the fall. And you can cite John Finnis and Aidan Nichols and and even the, the, the Lutheran uh, of the last century, Helmut Thielica, and others are right that the intrinsically disordered inclination of this objectively evil condition, which reflects the brokenness of our sinful world, the disordered creation that exists since the fall should be seen as a specific manifestation of the concupiscence that comes from original sin and leads to sin, but is itself not necessarily consciously chosen sin. Now, of course... Right. You can't treat the choice as if it were a bad, a bare choice, lacking context and other other causal factors for the homosexual conditions. I I, I quote uh, Robert Gagnon, who says choices involving response to social cultural stimuli from a person's developmental environment may, down the end of a long road, lead to greater or lesser likelihood of homosexual identification. In this light, we can understand, I say, why it is not inconsistent to hold that a person freely chooses to engage in homosexual practice in light of a plurality of elements and factors in the personality that are meant to make up a unified tendency upon which the subject constructs his own sexual identity and recognizes in place in relationship with others in the surrounding world. So, uh, I mean, again, this is another one of those... Uh, making it seem as if it's just chastity. Uh, right. that's, that's that's the issue. So that you can be same-sex attracted. This is part of the, um, you know, the idea that you can, you can have, uh, you know, homosexual friendships because, or because uh, there's nothing wrong as such with finding yourself attracted to, if you're a man to another man or a woman to another woman. Uh, you know, maybe you don't you don't act on these things, but it just seems to me that it's uh, from the order of creation. There isn't this parity between homosexuality and heterosexuality. Yeah, that's that's I think one of the fundamental problems um, is, is this notion of parity. Uh, you know, it's if you if you read uh, in, in any depth. <laughs> Or, or, or anything else, uh, the, the sort of queer theology that's out there right now. I don't, I haven't read books on queer theology, but every once in a while, I'll, I'll go out of my way to read an article on, on queer theology, as they call it, uh, for just to sort of keep up on what's going on. And, and one would imagine, so for example, that Father Martin also reads articles on queer theology. And what you see when you read those things is that they've gone well beyond saying that there's a parity or that it's neutral or that it's benign to saying that it is actually part of God's plan and part yes. of the fabric of creation for there to be a, a significant percentage of homosexual people among human beings, that it is part of a deeply good part of human nature, that God has implanted in human nature this sexual plasticity and fluidity precisely for a good purpose. Uh, 
And uh, then they go on to list what what the goods that flow from from homosexuals, you know, although, you know, Michelangelo was gay and, you know, maybe Shakespeare was gay. Maybe Dante was gay. So everybody's gay. Everybody's gay. And so all these great geniuses in history were gay. And then they like to tie their genius and their and their achievement precisely to their gayness, their their queerness. All right. Right. And it's precise. And this is the distinction they make between gay and queer. A lot of people want to know, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, queer was just a a slang term, a negative Mm -hmm. slang term to be applied to homosexuals. But now it means essentially uh, the, the, the willingness to be transgressive. Let's just put it that way. Being gay means I'm attracted to somebody of the same sex. But being queer means I can I can transgress all kinds of sexual norms uh, right. that the, the and queering means the weirding of things, the destabilizing of things, the denormalizing of certain right. normativities. And so the queering of things is very important in queer theology, this weirding of things. And, and there and they view that as why God put homosexuality into human nature precisely right. so that there would be queering individuals in our midst to fight against the oppression of the status quo and so on. And you, I, you, you, you have to believe that Father Martin has read and taken in this kind of literature. Right, right. Yes. The, the other thing it seems to me that's very important is, is the, the significance of the body, of a biologically structured yes. uh, sexual difference. Um, you know, Jesus is uh, asked about divorce in Mark 10, and he refers us back to the creation texts of Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, um, so that marriage is about uh, permanence, it's about twoness, uh, and, yes. and it's clear what that twoness is, it's male and female, you know, God yeah. created man in his image, male and female, and created, yeah. he created them, and so Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two. Well, which two? Well, the male and female, because that's the context. Yeah. And the two shall become one flesh. So, so it's about permanence. It's about uh, tunis, male and female tunis. But it's also about sexual differentiation being a fundamental prerequisite for the two to become one flesh. There's an inextricable, I would say, sort of nexus between permanence, tunis, and uh, and sexual differentiation in John Paul II's uh, in the in the theology of the body uh, in the in in part two of the theology of the body where he discusses uh, he discusses the uh, the sacrament of marriage he says um, essentially that uh, you know he has a hylomorphic view of the sacraments matter and form and all that but he says that that you can't have a valid sacrament if, in fact, you know, if you say, I take you as my my wife or I take you as my husband, there has to be a corresponding sexual difference there. It has to be if it's, uh, yeah. you know, male and female so that so that the validity of the sacrament um, it, it requires for the sacrament to be valid. It requires sexual difference. Uh, sexual differentiation, because only only a unitive act can be generative. Huh? Um, only a unitive act can be generative. And um, when the when the when the Catechism in Part Three, when it talks about homosexuality, and it says that the Church rejects 
you know, homosexual acts because they're not open to life. The reason they're not open to life is because um, there's no unit of act there. You know, uh, Finnis and others, they talk about uh, a reproductive type of sex act. Uh, it doesn't always, it, a reproductive type of sex act doesn't always result in conception, but it's the type of act that's open to life. Uh, and that's going to be necessary <coughs> in order to have a generative, in order for an act to be uh, generative uh, in the end. So yes. it seems to me that's that's just denied by, um, it's denied by, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, well, yeah, and, and the and the concept of the of the of the sacramental iconic value of the body uh, as male and female is very important here because oftentimes the pro homosexualist crowd will say, well, the unitive and, and generative connection is fine, but the fact is the church allows people to get married that they know are incapable of having children because one of them might be, you know, the woman might have female problems or, you know, uh, that yeah, sort so of... they may be infertile, but the fact is they still engage in the same kind of sex. Exactly. That, and that, that the, first... the, 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 and that their sexualized bodies as male right. and female right. have a certain sac. This is John Paul's point, have a yeah. sacramental message, have an right. iconic revelatory right. message right. that, no matter whether they're sterile or not, it has that inherent message in the very so language the of the of body. Sex. Yeah, um, yeah. Homosexuals or lesbians, no, they're, they they don't yes. engage in. That's why it's a reproductive type of sex act. It doesn't. It's so exactly. They have the inherent basic capacity that's been inhibited by infertility or other other problems, but nevertheless, it's a type of sex act. That's unitive. Yes. Well, another thing that, that goes unspoken here is this. What is being challenged really isn't just the church's teaching on homosexuality. What is being challenged is root and branch, the entirety of the church's natural law, moral theological tradition right. on the question of human sexuality. Because if you are right. now if you're going to say not only are homosexual actions no longer are to be tolerated. They're no longer considered sinful. They're actually considered positive goods in relationships of mutuality and love and so on. Then you're essentially saying that all any other form of human sexuality that is not part of that intrinsic model of male, female, unitive, generative marriage, those are now on the table as well. Well, uh, as allowable. You know, the trans. Uh, that's another story, but that's, you know, uh, I was just watching a, uh, an, a news item about how these uh, women who belong to a, a sorority, I forget where, and the national sorority allowed a man, yes. who claims he's a woman, to become a member of the sorority. And, and these six or seven women have sued the national sorority uh, because a man is a man. Biological male right. is a biological male. He's got a penis. Right. And one of them said that uh, we could see that this man was biologically, well, he was sexually aroused. <laughs> and these women yeah. were, were in the room, you see. So so he's not only a, 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 identifies as a woman, he must identify as a lesbian woman. So, yeah, exactly, because he's still so, attracted so these, to women. These, so to me, that, and you agree that it's fundamental, the, 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 the moral and sacramental significance of the body a biologically differentiated body 
uh, sexual difference, all of that is, yeah. uh, which which really undermines uh, it undermines creation and hence undermines any kind of, you know, law structure there for uh, sexual relations and and all of that. All of that is is uh, is rejected. Not, but again, not the least of which is rejecting the moral and sacramental significance of the body of a sexual sexually differentiated body. That the, yeah. that the, the, you know who who takes that position is what's her name, the the Mercy Sister uh, Margaret Farley. Oh, Farley, yeah, Farley. You know she wrote that book, yeah. Just Love. Yeah, and it's all about relational norms. You see, it's not about. Uh, yeah, uh, I never read that book, but I saw her interviewed once, and she was sort of encapsulating its message. Uh, yeah, it's it's. It's well, anything's on the table now. Anything. In fact, I would say that the uh, everything from, uh, you know, the chapter on the sixth commandment in the catechism, she rejects all of that. Not the least of which that yeah. that, that chapter begins by grounding uh, sexual morality in the context of Genesis one twenty seven. God created man, male and female. All of that. All she rejects all of that and all of the offenses against chastity. Of course, she she doesn't take to be offenses. And, um, and there's other down downstream implications of all of this that is that essentially it turns all of moral theology into proportionalist uh, right. models because it, because the hemorrhaging isn't going to stop simply with sexual ethics. No. Because if you're if you're going to say that all of these formerly intrinsically disordered actions are now not only OK, but morally good. Uh, across the board, uh, then it, what you're appealing to is are proportionalist metrics, uh, maybe even fundamental option metrics. So now, I mean, not every act of theft, not every act of lying, not every act of cheating on my taxes, not every, right. you know, you, never, ne not every act of getting emotionally abusive with people can now be considered intrinsically disordered, coveting my neighbor's wife, coveting my neighbor's property, right, right, you know, right. dishonoring my mom and dad, taking the Lord's name in vain, not going to church on Sunday. Now, all of those things are up for grabs, too, because after all, as long as my fundamental option is intact, I can come right. up with a million proportionalist reasons right, as to why right. my complex circumstances allow me an out on any of those actions let's uh if if you if we may let's t turn for a moment to uh to father martin's uh the whole question of authority right uh, that's good churches. yes so um you know there's a a place of course where since he ignores the normative context he never discusses the teaching of the church regarding the relationship between chastity and homosexual practice or offenses against chastity. And I say Father Martin might respond by saying that he instructs the members of the so-called LGBT community to respect the authority of the church's teaching. But he is quick to add, quote, as Catholics, we believe in various levels of teaching authority, he says, in our church. And hence, yeah. not all teachings have equal authority. And of course, as a general principle, this is of course correct. Still, he gives no examples of which what teachings are authoritative. And well, what's what he implying? What's he implying? Well, he's implying that the teaching regarding you know sexual morality has no yeah. you know your lower authority. It's got it has, to do with sex. No, no, it, it, no yeah, yeah, exactly. So he never tells the so-called LGBT community which teachings in respect to same-sex issues, are binding in faith, 
on what grounds and to what extent? Why binding in faith? He has a reference to some vague call for respect, but that doesn't approximate what the ascent of faith requires when we are speaking of teachings that are irreversible, definitive, indeed infallible, and hence possessing the highest degree of certainty, such as, I say, the teachings in the Catechism in paragraphs 2331 to 2359, which have to do with sexual morality, including homosexuality, and which therefore require the assent of faith, meaning thereby that they should be held to be true. Furthermore, even those truths that the church teaches authoritatively but non-definitively require more than just respect. The assent here, too, is intrinsic to the logic of faith, such that, the, quote, the faithful uh, Lumen Gentium 25 says, such that the faithful are to accept their teaching and adhere to it with a religious assent, which is a religious submission of mind and will. Now, Father Mar is Father Martin suggesting, I ask, that the Christian anthropology, that is the prolegomena to the church's teaching on the sixth commandment, in paragraphs 2331 to 2336 of the Catechism, the vocation of the human person that follows from that anthropology, and the sexual morality of man's vocation to chastity, are these all non-definitive teaching? Yes, I think he thinks that. He says, Catholics must prayerfully consider what the church is teaching. To do that, we are called to listen. Their teaching deserves our respect. This means, he adds, LGBT Catholics are invited to challenge themselves to listen closely, to consider, pray, and of course, use their informed consciences as they discern how to lead their lives. Of course, this advice, I say, falls far short of informing them that faith requires them to accept the church's teaching on sexuality. And you would think, I say, that in a book that deals with the church's stance toward homosexuality, he would make a real effort to inform the members of the so-called LGBT community of the church's teachings on the Sixth Commandment and all its implications for sexual morality and the moral life in Christ. But he never does. No. Which goes to the if he this is all uh, he's just paying lip service here. This yeah. is him being, in my opinion, I'm just going to say it, it, mendacious, deceptive, manipulative, yeah. because yeah. he wants to fly under the radar. He wants to maintain his status as a Jesuit in good standing. He wants to be able to maintain, hey, I don't challenge church teaching. Look here. I tell homosexuals that they need to pay attention to the church. Uh, but then he throws that little whammy in there that all liberals do. All, you're in, you need to follow your informed conscience. But right. then. OK, notice then he turns around. And as you just correctly pointed out, does he help them inform their consciences? No, no. In fact, he does the reverse, just like the outreach thing on biblical exegesis. Everything that he does is designed to form their consciences against the church. Right. Right. Did he invite anybody there? You know, let's say no, like uh Someone like uh, yourself or someone like, uh, well, Benedict actually is dead, but someone who would have re represented the church's teaching. A Matthew Levering, uh, somebody Matthew like Levering. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah or you, or you, or, yeah, uh, no, no. you know, or, or a Robbie George, perhaps. Well, I like Robbie George, but he, he made it seem as if, you know, he made it seem, you know, as if Father Martin was a, a faithful son of the church and he accepts the church's teaching on these matters. Well, I know that. I, so I agree with you on that critique, but all the more reason why 
uh, Father Martin might be amenable if he well, wanted to true, bring out a he, different voice. That's here's, true. A, here's at least a voice that pays homage and respect to what it is that I'm trying to yes, do yes, yes. in building bridges and whatnot. And he doesn't include even that voice. And also, I mean, this is neither here nor there in some ways, but Father Martin is at this point notorious for blocking people on Twitter, yes. uh, on Facebook and so forth that don't that don't agree with his point of view in any way. Shape, or... So, no, he's not a person that's open to dialogue. He's therefore not a person that's really and truly open to the church's teaching. And no. he has spent the majority of the past five, six, seven years informing the consciences of homosexuals contrary that the they have, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made as homosexuals. Exactly, that's right. That's that's what, it, and that they're just differently ordered and in a good just way. Just differently ordered, exactly. So not only is the problem, if um, not only is the problem that that all of these people that he invited and himself included, you know, uh, undermine the moral authority of the Bible that there's a determinate moral content, all that. But also they separate, uh, I talk a bit about this, they separate morality, uh, faith and morality. And it seemed to me that uh, that the church holds that there's an, because, because the Bible does, there's an intrinsic and unbreakable bond between faith and morality. Jesus said, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. This question about the bond between faith and morality must deal directly with the eternal significance of the moral choices that people make, indeed with their eternal salvation. In this light, we can understand why St. Paul consistently urges us to make choices that are worthy yes. of the calling that we yes. receive in Christ. Paul, And, and why Paul says sins of the flesh bar you from the kingdom. That's true. In particular, he identifies the risk posed by especially, but not only, Sexual offenses. Do you not know, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Stop deceiving yourselves. Neither sexually immoral persons, the, the Greek, pornoi, uh, like the yes. incestuous man, nor yeah. idolaters, nor adulterers, nor soft men, the, the malakoi, that is men who feminize themselves to attract male sex partners, nor men who lie with a male, so that's our, our synechoitai, uh, a term formed from the Levitical prohibition of male homosexual practice, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The Catechism of the Catholic Church instructs us that certain choices result in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace. This is in paragraph 1861. The Catechism adds, if it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. How is that so? Well, the Catechism concludes because our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. And against this background, we're not surprised that Father Martin never addresses the question of morality, let alone sexual morality, and hence never presents the members of the so-called LGBT community with the call to chastity. That's right. Namely, to, to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they're Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. Yeah. And then all, all that, in addition by the virtues of self-mastery that teach inner freedom at times by the support of disinterested friendship, the Catechism says, by prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. Yes, of course, as you said earlier, Father Martin, you know, we're all sinners. We're all imperfect people. 
Yeah. And he's doing that, of course, to relativize the significance of sexual to sexual sins. And that, that, of course, is true enough. And yet, once again, one would think that in a book about human sexuality, an author writing from a Catholic perspective would identify the specific sexual struggles of the moral life yeah. in Christ as the Sixth Commandment bears upon them and the Don't corresponding sexual sins against chastity. I think there's a fundamental psychology at work here, too, very similar to, I think, what Luther experienced. And namely, there's a kind of despairing after grace and its effectiveness in, in issue and in sins relating to fundamental bodily concupiscence. One of the reasons why you never hear them talking about, for example, why uh, theft might be OK in certain circumstances or lying or whatever, is that I think they would consider those to be moral vices and sins that are not so hard to overcome. Just right. don't do those. Uh, that grace really can help us convert. But there, there is a sense in which our deep-seated bodily desires, once they become ingrained and disordered through a lifetime of, of indulging our concupiscence, is extremely difficult to overcome. And right. therefore, you know, the, like someone who's addicted to pornography, or, or masturbation, or someone who's addicted, you know, to, to gay sex, or just uh, right. sex in general, that right. these are hard sins to overcome. And so right. I think there's there's a subtle insinuation in so much of what Father Martin writes, and Cardinal McElroy and others, that it's cruel of the church. It's downright, her teaching is, inflicts pain and punishment. This is McElroy's point. The church's current teaching inflicts pain and punishment on the homosexual because it asks them to be sexually chaste, continent, to refrain from the sexual. And there's this subtle implication that grace is not available to help them overcome those temptations. The subtle implication that, and therefore, because and because grace is not sufficient to help them do that, therefore, we cannot expect them to. And then that then becomes, therefore, this is an intrinsic part of their lives that we now need to bless. This is uh, the point that you're making, John Paul II makes in Veritas of Splendor in paragraph yes. 103. Where do you think I got it? <laughs> okay, where he's discussing, you know, you know, St. Paul doesn't, uh, uh, you know, in, in uh, what is it, in Second in Corinthians 3, St. Paul doesn't say, be reconciled within the boundaries of what is possible for you. That's right. No. He says, be reconciled to God. You know, God was in Christ, not counting men's sins against them and so on. And that the message of reconciliation, that we're ambassadors of that message, be reconciled to God. So John Paul says in paragraph 103, only in the mystery of Christ's redemption do we discover the concrete possibilities of man. It would be a very serious effort to conclude that the church's teaching is essentially only an ideal. So it has an aspiring force, not a not a you know a, an obliging force uh, it, it's something you aspire after which must then be adapted proportion graduated to the so-called concrete possibilities of man you know uh what's his name yeah uh supage once said this in an uh, you know why he wouldn't refuse homosexual men yeah you know to receive communion but what are the concrete possibilities of man the pope says asked and of which man are we speaking of man dominated by lust or of man redeemed by christ this is what is at stake the reality of christ's redemption they don't see that mcelroy and all these others christ has redeemed us this means that he has given us the possibility of realizing the entire truth of our being he has set our freedom free from the domination of concupiscence 
And if redeemed man still sins, this is not due to an imperfection of Christ's redemptive act, but to man's will not to avail himself of the grace which flows from that act. God's command is, of course, proportioned to man's capacities or capabilities, but to the capabilities of the man to whom the Holy Spirit has been given, of the man who, though he has fallen into sin, can always obtain pardon and enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in paragraph 104, in this context, appropriate allowance is made both for God's mercy toward the sin of man who experiences conversion and for the understanding of human weakness. Such understanding, which is the contrary of what these cardinals are doing, such understanding never means compromising and falsifying the standard of good and evil in order to adapt it to particular circumstances, as right. if the standard is your weakness. That's right. It is quite human for the sinner to acknowledge his weakness and to ask mercy for his failings. What is unacceptable is the attitude of the one who makes his own weakness the criterion of the truth about the good. And this is why this is so important, Edward. People can say, well, Dr. Chap, Dr. Echeverry, why are you so obsessed? Once again, the church is obsessed with sex and blah, 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 homosexuality, because ultimately there's a much, much deeper issue at stake here, and it involves all of moral theology. In fact, it, in, it involves the entire economy of salvation and right. the regime of grace laid out in the New Testament, the pattern of salvation laid out in the New Testament that John Paul beautifully articulates in very touchy splendor, which is what I was alluding to. I'm glad you you have it right, right in front of you there, and right. we're quoting it. That what is at stake here is nothing short of redemption as redemption. such, the power redemption. of grace as such, and therefore what is at stake is hope. Uh, one of the one of the great sort of abstractions that we engage in here is we we talk about these issues in the abstract, but in in the church. The church is, is at least exists in part to create a community of the faithful in order to support one another in the path to sanctity, in the path right. to holiness. Right. And there's no stasis. A, a, you know, a, a parish is either trending upward or it's trending downward. So the, if you follow the recipe of McElroy, Supich, Holerick, Father Martin, and these others, what you do is you, you create a church community that's a, simply a mosh pit of concupiscence. Right. And that therefore then drags us down, blinds us spiritually, and creates within us a lack of hope that grace is actually operative. Right. And so instead of becoming a community of sanctification, we now are involved in becoming a synodal community that listens to the new thing the Holy Spirit is doing, which is essentially blessing my concupiscence. Bless, uh, yeah, exactly. Here's a, just uh, you know, to follow up here. Just to quote Pope Francis from, uh, you know, from uh, his Evangelii Gaudium, he says, although it sounds obvious, Pope Francis says, spiritual accompaniment must lead others even ever closer to God in whom we attain true freedom. To accompany them would be counterproductive if it became a sort of therapy supporting yes. their self-absorption and cease to be a pilgrimage with Christ to the Father. Now, I say Father Martin's book does not tell the so-called LGBT community the truth, indeed the gospel truth, and hence he cannot help people avoid the danger of what Francis calls here therapeutic self-absorption. Therapeutic self-absorption. My point, yes. Exactly. You know, and that brings us back to the beginning. And so the, the, whole, the whole primacy of the experience, pastoral approaches, I talk about that in this other article, pastoral approaches that takes that want to listen. I have no problem with listening to the person 
you know, who's uh, who's struggling with same-sex attraction. But why accept his experience as somehow normative, as somehow a normative that's experience? Right. And, and that's that's the problem. So he, so this point of therapeutic self-absorption undercuts Father Martin's presupposition, justifying self-authenticating experiences. Chiefly, spiritual accompaniment calls for conversion, including moral conversion. The Catechism says, this endeavor of conversion is not just a human work, it is the movement of a contrite heart, drawn and, and moved by grace to respond to the merciful love of God who loved us first. Anyway, so this, yeah. to me, that's one of the things from uh, Evangelii Gaudium that I like, because the Pope clearly understood, you know, this therapeutic self-absorption. You know, the person, you, you know, accompanying this person is counterproductive, he says, because it becomes a, a sort of therapy supporting their self-absorption. I can, I mean, it seems to me that's Father Martin. It's therapeutic oh. self-absorption. And Absolutely. that's because he affirms that from the order of creation, the homosexual is fearfully and wonderfully made. And we just, we want them to affirm their experience and 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 ta-da-ta, all of that. And yeah, so, and yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say you're right. I mean, what, um, everything that that's implied that we've talked about, you know, uh, you can't make yeah. uh, criticisms. You know, you make uh, people's feelings. You know, uh, they're offended. Uh, you know, he'll say, "Oh, you know, you're saying that their love as such is intrinsically disordered," and and so on and so on. Uh, yeah. There are disordered forms of love, Father Martin, I want to say. Yes, there are disordered forms of love. And those forms of love might feel quite natural to right. the individuals involved. And they might actually outwardly, or outwardly involve acts of tender compassion and support and nurturing and mercy. But none but of that, that is morally neutral. That's right. None of it is. And it all redounds back to the fundamentally disordered nature of, of the inclination in the first place. And you might say, well... Why is that a big deal? Well, because it is a big deal, uh, because, like I said, it has ripple effects across the board outward from 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 that if, it, if it's acknowledged. But I just you know we're, we're getting towards the end here. Yeah. Um, but to me, one of the things, you know, just as a general thing, when I read stuff like this from a father, Martin or Cardinal McRoy, I want to step back and say what in any of this would cause anyone to want to be specifically a Christian, or even more specifically, a Catholic, uh, if, if the whole point is simply fellowship and nurturing and acceptance, I can get that in better places than the church in some way. You know, in, in other words, if sure, it's just sure. this, I can get that at a bar stool with a bunch of you know, people, you know, this right. sort of non-judgmental secular acceptance of who I am and so on. Uh, what's, what's the Christic difference? What what what's the specific you know and and therefore it it gives us an image of the church that to me leaves me cold leaves me dead leaves me despairing. Well, where well then what is grace? What well, did they Christ don't actually in do. In my view, in the end, that's why I always quote Niebuhr. They don't understand the atoning work of Christ. No, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. They 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 fundamentally have a a a, uh, a theologically uh, flawed view 
of the atoning work of Christ. I don't even, even though their view is sort of Abelardian as far as Christ is yeah. concerned, even Abelard wouldn't have accepted uh, what they're what they're talking about. You know, oh, so not at all, not at no, all. No, no, no. So it's uh, it's really this is where you say when you sit down and you analyze it, you can see that it's a it's a kind of a total uh, different understanding of uh, the Christian, the Catholic faith. Um, because it, it really that that nails it. It, it involves anthropology. It involves yes. creation. It involves um, uh, the relationship between grace and nature, uh, faith and morality. Um, the yeah. you know the the reconciliation well, it, with God. All all of these things are have been lost. It also involves, as you pointed out earlier, what then becomes. Of, of even the last shred of the concept of church authority. Right. I mean, because this fly, as I pointed out in my article, why doesn't Father Martin in the outreach page dealing with biblical exegesis ever, ever quote, say the biblical exegesis of St. John Chrysostom or Augustine or Aquinas right. Or, right. or Gregory of Nyssa or, right. or Maximus the Confessor or Borromeo or Alphonsus Liguori or as recently as very Tati Splendor or even, you know, Pope, Pope Francis. I mean, come on. It's 2000 years of both. And so that they've debunked scripture. They just completely right. ignored 2000 years of church development of those scriptures right. and of moral theology. Now, so it's all, we're just sui generis. We're just making it up now as we go along on, on our own, out of our one, own head. One last thing, of course, is the, the unfortunate, the unfortunate, the misleading, you know, there's Father Martin in Rome sitting with the Pope, taking his photos. And, yeah. and then you think, People, you know what? Obviously, those are photo ops for Father Martin, which, which of course he thinks will tell people, see the Pope, the Pope supports what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, well, this is a whole. I mean, I'm going to have to have you back on. We've discussed Pope Francis before, yeah. and Morris Letizia. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole other show for a whole other day because it's not just Father Martin. It's the two private letters Pope Francis sent to Sister Gramic of oh, New Sister Ways Gramic, Ministry. Despite the fact that Sister, Gr yeah, I know that. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. Uh, despite the fact that Cardinal Holerick is quite public in saying the Church is wrong on homosexuality, and he made him the Relator General of the Synod. Cardinal you know, McElroy, I, Cardinal McElroy clearly has the Pope's favor, and he's running around the country now on a speaking tour saying the church is wrong on homosexuality. One thing, you know, you remember the, that uh, that Portuguese guy, Pedro, Pedro Gabriel, you know, who. Oh, yeah, who, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And I had a I had an exchange with him last year and and I'm actually going to review his. He has a new book uh, where he's obviously it's always about defending the Pope on tradition yeah. and all this. But he I said to him. I sent him this article. I said, I said, Pedro, how, how, how does the Pope justify putting Cardinal Hollerich as the relator of the Synod when he when when he rejects the church's teaching on this, that, and the other? And he said to me, total rationalization. But he said to me, Well, you see, the Pope, uh, there are very few conservatives that support the Pope. And I said to him, Well, there are very few conservatives. So he has to he has to pick one who's oh. a liberal. I yeah, said, that makes no sense. That no, makes I mean, why not? Uh, why not pick someone who's more moderate, who both supports the Pope and the Church's teaching, say Cardinal Sean O'Malley, to be the, the right. really, you know. Well, why uh, not? Why not call back uh, Cardinal Muller? 
Well, somebody like that. I yeah. mean, good heavens, there are plenty of uh there are plenty of bishops out there, or even uh anyway, this is this makes absolutely no sense. How do you that how do you put these people in place? These are yeah. the people that reflect the uh the German uh, synod and the 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 Belgian synod, you know, they want to bless same sex. Oh, unions. yeah, absolutely. How do you put so, people like it makes uh, no sense? The problem, and we really do have to have another show. The problem with Pedro Gabriel and where Peter is in general is this. They do actually a very good job of putting a good orthodox spin on what it is that the Pope says and writes. Uh, Even though you and I have certain issues, for example, with Amoris Laetitia and places. And overall, I think a, a good case can be made out that Pope Francis, in his words, you know, both written and spoken is 99% thoroughly sort of on cue with the tradition. The issue that I have with Pope Francis with Pedro Gabriel and where Peter is can never answer is the incongruity, the, the disorientation between what the Pope says and what he does, what he does. Absolutely. Well, like what he does, he puts Holerich as the relator who doesn't accept the church's teaching on sexuality wants to whatever abolish Something and I'm actually writing a sort of blog post on this right now, uh, which will become hopefully an article in Catholic World Report. You know, something has to explain this incongruity between the the fundamental orthodoxy of the pope's words and the fact that he keeps promoting people to high office who are not orthodox, right? Who who do dissent from church, especially moral moral theology. It's it's a well. I'll have to have you back on, Eduardo. That makes no sense. Well, when I. uh... Like I said, I'm I'm gonna I haven't gotten it yet, but the the publisher was gonna send me the the PDF of the of uh, Pedro's book. Okay, um, good. And Pedro, right. by, by the way, Pedro seems like a really nice guy. He's I a mean. nice guy. He loves his yeah. wife. <laughs> yeah, he's a nice I mean, guy. I, I, yeah, so I'm not here to call it call him out. No, no, say, no, oh, no. He is a nice person. guy, and he's also yeah. a smart guy. He's not. Yeah, he's not, very smart guy. He's and smart uh, guy, and uh, you know. he's an oncologist. That's his. A daily profession, you know, but he is a smart guy. I have no, uh, I, I'd be the first to say that, but there's yeah. just this, there's just this inability to say there's something wrong here. There's something going on here. What's what, there's an incongruity. There's a contradiction. And it might involve a certain ecclesiological, uh, I think lack of sophistication theologically as to what papal authority actually requires of us in terms right. of, Right, uh, right. You know, I, I don't you know the need to defend every word the Pope says or does like he's the Oracle of Delphi. Right. Uh, instead of simply the guarantor of a tradition with a negative charism. I mean, infallibility is not a positive charism. It's simply a negative charism. Right. He's not inspired like scripture. No, he's no, just he's guaranteed not. he's not going to make a mistake in a serious matter pertaining right. to faith and morals when, when speaking right. infallibly. Uh Right. Uh, and we do have to give religious submission of mind and will, uh, but that doesn't mean uh, brain dead submission so that the Pope can never be critiqued. Otherwise, we'd right. never be able to criticize a Pope, right? right. Nothing ever, anywhere, anything that a well, Pope, the Pope ever Pope has to justify the, the the claims that he makes in light in light of the authoritative sources of the faith. He can't just say exactly this is it. And then you also can't invoke synodality. And no, that no. we wa- and we don't want to have an infantilized laity, and we don't no. we want we don't want to have a centralized papal authority, and we no. and we want 
people to follow their informed consciences and, and then turn around and slap you down if you ever criticize them on the right. grounds that you dare not challenge us. Well, that those two, once again, incongruity, incongruity, right. you know. But anyway, we obviously All could right, talk we about go. this. Okay, man. Good yeah. talking to you. And thank uh, you for coming on the show. We'll have you on again, Eduardo, right. as always a privilege. And thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to today's episode on a very important topic. All right. Thank Take you. care, brother. Good to see you. You too. Take care. Thanks again. You too.